Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jody Westby, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerry Buckley. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Rotenberg, president and founder of the Center for AI and Digital Policy. Mark previously founded the Electronic and Privacy Information Center and has been a global leader on privacy issues for decades. He is a voice that is heard and listened to. Mark is the editor of the AI Policy Sourcebook, a member of the OECD expert group on AI, and helped draft the universal guidelines for AI. Mark teaches GDPR and privacy law at Georgetown Law and is co-author of Privacy Law and Society, published by West Academic in 2016, and the Privacy Law Sourcebook in 2020. Mark is also a founding board member and former chair of the Public Interest Registry, which manages the .org domain. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. I know our listeners will be very interested in what you have to say. We've had some, although limited, discussion on this podcast about artificial intelligence and its impact on privacy. So let's start off with learning a bit about your new organization, the Center for AI and Digital Policy. Tell us about it. What's its mission and what has it been doing on this important topic? First of all, it's very nice to be with you, Jody and Jerry. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with your listeners today. Our new organization, the Center for AI and Digital Policy, is focused on what many consider to be the most important field in technology policy today, and that, of course, is the growing significance of artificial intelligence. When we established the center, our goal was to continue our work as an independent voice on behalf of the public to try to set out frameworks and support legal guidelines that would safeguard fundamental rights. I am particularly interested in the relationship between AI policy and democratic values, because as we looked at the policies and practices of countries around the world, we oftentimes saw a sharp split between those countries that saw AI as a way to promote democratic values and those countries that saw AI as a way to consolidate central authority. So through our work at the center, we are monitoring those policies and practices, publishing reports, uh, making recommendations to governments and international organizations, and doing the best uh, we can to try to steer AI technology 
toward more uh, human-centric outcomes. Well, that sounds about right for you. You've always been a thought leader on the global stage. I remember once telling your mother that all mothers hope their children will come into this world and make a difference, but not many see their child make a difference on the planet as you have. I think she liked that. Your new center has provided AI policy advice to the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, the CAHAI, which I had to look up. I think it's the Ad Hoc Committee on Artificial Intelligence, the Club de Madrid, the European Commission, and the European Parliament, the G20, the Italian presidency of the G20, the Government of Colombia, the National Security Commission on AI in the U.S., and the Organization of American States and the U.S. Congress, all since it was founded in the past year. I don't know how you do this. You've always been prolific, but it's amazing. How do you see the U.S. is positioned on the global policy stage with all of that background? How do you see us positioned on the global policy stage, if I could just speak, especially regarding privacy? Well, on the AI front, I've been encouraged to hear not only leaders in the Biden administration, but President Biden himself talk explicitly about the need to support democratic values. We've heard this also from the National Security Advisor, uh, Jake uh, Sullivan, as well as the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and others. So on the AI front, the words have been encouraging. I think there's still a lot of practical work ahead and a lot of institution building that needs to take place in the U.S. to make sure that those ambitions are translated into outcomes. The privacy story, as you might imagine, has uh, become more complex. You know, it's been true for many years that the United States has needed to update its uh, privacy laws. I remember you know, drafting privacy laws back in the 1980s. And at the time, we felt we were a little bit ahead of the curve. But of course, Congress has done very little over the last 20 or 30 years. And while those laws have, you know, weathered a few storms, I would be the last to claim that they are sufficient for the current need. On the global stage, I think the U.S. needs to do more. I think the belief that self-regulation would be sufficient with uh, you know, the challenges posed by the Internet industry are obviously no longer a viable policy direction. And so we'll need uh, new legal frameworks. We very much need a data protection in the United States. And we also need to understand that privacy protection is increasingly a matter of national security. When I testified in Congress a few years ago before the Senate Finance Committee, I was talking only partly about what big companies were doing with personal data. I was very much concerned, actually, at the time about what foreign adversaries were doing with the personal data of American consumers. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, all of that is so right. It is so much more complex than we used to think about. And I think that may be a real challenge for Congress. I want to get Jerry involved in this. Jerry? Well, Mark, uh, it's really an honor to have you with us. And uh, I'm appreciating hearing your insights. Uh, You know, we had uh, Peter Swire and Dan Solo on our podcast episodes in the past, and both talked about cross-border data flows and the Schrems decisions. You've had such a strong background in government surveillance and privacy enforcement 
What are your thoughts regarding how U.S. companies can engage in data uh, can engage in data flows from Europe uh, to the U.S. and comply with FREMS two decisions and the latest EDPB guidance? And I am also wondering if you think there should be more transparency regarding government surveillance to reduce the burden on business. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I think U.S. businesses are in a difficult position. There is a real understandable concern within the European Union about what happens to the personal data of European citizens once it goes outside the borders of Europe. And as I've tried to explain to my students over many years at Georgetown talking about European privacy law, U.S. regulators who are concerned about food safety or auto safety or airline safety would take a similar view as to the protection of American consumers when the practices of foreign companies bear on the safety or well-being of Americans. So in many respects, the development of European privacy law, the establishment first of the Data Protection Directive and then the GDPR, and the two Schrems decisions are really not very surprising. They're a reflection of a decision that Europe rightly made about the growing impact of the digitalization of, of personal data. And the problem on the U.S. side, because we have not updated our privacy laws in a comprehensive manner, we don't have a privacy agency, is that U.S. companies that want to offer you know, online services to, to European customers have to deal with the U.S. reality and try to you know, establish their particular business practices that they comply, that their standards are adequate. And, and frankly, it's not an efficient outcome. It imposes unnecessary costs. I think it is you know, long past time to enact comprehensive privacy legislation. I remember after the first TREMS decision, I was testifying before a House committee about all this, and both Democratic and Republican members, I think, understood fairly well why it was actually in the business interest, as well as the consumer interest, to update U.S. privacy law. But without a commitment from congressional leadership, it never happened. And so, of course, now we have TREMS too. To your second point about transparency, I'm a big fan of transparency. I actually think it's the real privacy paradox. I know that phrase is oftentimes used to describe the disjunction between a person's you know, avowed preference for privacy and what they actually do. I actually think that's not a particularly useful insight. Behavioral economics uh, explains why people do what they do. Uh, I think the real privacy paradox is that you actually enforce privacy safeguards through greater openness and through greater transparency. So I was always a big fan of the reporting requirements in the Federal Wiretap Act. Now we go back, we're, we're in a time machine, I guess, on the show, but now we go back to the 1960s when Congress was authorizing the use of electronic surveillance in the United States. There were very stringent warrant requirements. There was a very narrow set of predicate acts that could even provide a basis for electronic surveillance. There was a lot of judicial oversight. And most interestingly, there was a very extensive public reporting requirement. 
Congress actually said to the courts, if you're going to authorize electronic surveillance by means of a wiretap order, you know, we want to know what crime was charged, what the outcome was, whether this was an efficient investigative technique, whether there was a less intrusive investigative technique, and how much all of this cost. And that type of data gathering has actually been very useful over the years to assess the effectiveness of court-ordered electronic surveillance. I actually spent a lot of time at EPIC promoting those reports from the administrative courts and encouraging my students and also lawmakers to use that reporting requirement as a model for other privacy laws. Now, of course, today we use the phrase transparency reports somewhat more loosely. Many companies issue transparency reports and they're, I think, trying to tell people a bit about how they respond uh, to government requests for data about both their customers and their own business practices. Those are helpful, uh, but the best model, really the gold standard, is the one that Congress established uh, back in the 1960s. I'd like to see, frankly, more of the burden on the government to tell us about how it's using those surveillance authorities and whether, in fact, they are effective. Very interesting points, Mark. You know, I worked on the Hill. I worked six years on the Senate Banking Committee and was ultimately the minority staff director. And I I am left scratching my head as to why, given the vital importance of data and the fact that the digital economy was invented here, why we have ceded to others the responsibility of this area. It's not as if and, I, you know, you've mentioned the Biden administration initiatives, and I think they are to be applauded. But why on the administration side, no matter which administration, there is, again, no serious leadership, no person designated as the person interested in data governance and privacy and, and cyber uh, risk? It is really stunning to me that this very important issue has not been able to find a, a home with people who have the national interest at heart, but don't seem to understand the importance of it. It, it, it really is stunning, uh, just my personal observation. But do you think the U.S. government will be able to negotiate a, a privacy framework that U.S. companies that will allow U.S. companies to engage in U.S.-EU cross-border data flows subject to U.S. regulatory enforcement? Well, let me say, Jared, I've always been an optimist. So if, if you ask me, is something possible, I will say yes. Um, I think there's still a lot of work ahead. And I think there's some education required to help everybody understand why there's a common interest, a national interest in updating our privacy laws and putting in place strong safeguards. Uh, you know, I'm not the only person who will tell you that U.S. companies are under uh, attack by foreign adversaries precisely because of the personal data they hold on consumers. I mean, we had a terrible episode, you know, also in government agencies at the Office of Personnel Management back in 2015 yeah. with a brief 22 and a half million records of, of you know, federal employees, family members, friends, the SF-86 uh, form, that's the you know, form that's used for background investigation and classified positions. 
that was breached. I think there are over 5 million uh, digitized fingerprints all breached. And even this week, you know, President Biden is admonishing micro um, admonishing China for for the attack on the Microsoft servers. These are very serious issues and they translate uh, into enormous cost uh, to American consumers and identity theft and economic loss to American business. And frankly, I think you know, people have been a bit short-sighted in trying to assess the upside and downside of privacy legislation. I think they assume that we're doing fine and we don't need to adopt such practices as data minimization and, you know, strong security techniques. But those consequences of not putting in place strong practices will be with us for many years. Weak and security measures, unlike other types of crime or risk, it's an ongoing risk. It doesn't exist at a, at a particular moment in time. It's there until you solve it. And yeah. I think that's the reality uh, that, that we face today as a nation. Very well said. Do you think that on this more micro level, the, uh, that there will be a possibility of negotiating something with the EU that resolves the or helps to ameliorate the Schrems too and the uh, European Data Protection Board? Yeah, I, I hope so. I actually wrote a, a detailed article last year. It appeared in the European Law Journal in, in September after Schrems 2. And I was, you know, giving advice both to the EU and to the US lawmakers about a path forward. And the main point I was making is that the background of Schrems 2 is very different from the background of Schrems 1. You may recall that. You know, the first Schrems decision emerged after the revelations uh, by Edward Snowden of the uh, NSA's uh, surveillance on foreign governments, including U.S. allies. And that clearly drove a wedge between the EU and the U.S. It made uh, surveillance an issue that actually divided negotiators in the transatlantic context. And the point in my article is that Trump's too is very different because it's, instead of Snowden in the background, now we have China in the background. And my point is that this can actually unite transatlantic negotiators in a common effort uh, to a legislative outcome. So I'm actually more optimistic now than I was after Schrems 1 because I think there is really a more unity in the U.S. and EU position, but it will require leadership. I keep coming back to this uh, point, uh, partly out of frustration, because I've seen many good bills introduced in the Congress, but I've seen very few committees holding hearings or markups on those bills. And, you know, of course, we have no floor votes and nothing for the president to sign. So some of the responsibility on that issue clearly lies with the Congress. And of course, both houses are now controlled by the Democrats. So I think they need to uh, get to work. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I, before I, I throw it back to Jody, just to observe, I believe it is in the last month or two that the European trade with China has surpassed their European trade with the United States. So there will be some economic pressures uh, on the Europeans as they Hopefully, we achieve unity in our position. I think our culture and, and views and values are very similar, but uh, we will have to deal with the Chinese economic power as well. But anyway, Jody, back to you. Mark, what about the other initiatives underway at the EU, the e-privacy regulation, the draft AI regulation, and the Data Governance Act, which sets the ground 
work for reuse of particular public sector data and the sharing of personal and non-personal data. The U.S. is only looking at state comprehensive privacy laws and the most basic provisions for a national privacy law. Do you see aspects of these EU regulations and proposals becoming part of national privacy law in the U.S., or is that expecting too much? Well, I think there are a lot of pieces on the table, and it's not clear how they all are going to fit together. Of course, we've been waiting for the e-privacy directive uh, for many, many years. The original expectation was that it would be adopted in 2016 at the same time as the GDPR. That didn't happen. Then there was hope that it would move forward under the Portuguese presidency. That didn't happen. Now we have the presidency under Slovenia. It's not clear uh, that it will be a priority for the current uh, leadership of the European Council. So on the e-privacy directive, we'll have to wait and see. As to the, you know, GSA, you know, this is one of actually two measures because the GMA as well, trying to deal with the digital economy and the role of dominant platforms and to promote competition. Clearly, there are similar efforts underway in the U.S., uh, bipartisan actually now in the House, and the new FTC chair, Lena Khan, has expressed interest as well in uh, similar policy initiatives. But they're actually on the competition front. I would say that the EU and the U.S. are going down separate paths, maybe sharing similar concerns. Uh, the AI regulation is actually fascinating. It's the one that we're following uh, most closely. Uh, we've prepared one set of comments and we're working on, a, on another set of comments. It's been scrutinized by business groups and academics and NGOs. I think it gets a mostly favorable review. Uh, there's a growing awareness that Brussels really does have the ability to set out these broad frameworks as it did with the GDPR mm -hmm. and influence uh, global tech policy. I think that is likely to happen with the EU AI regulation. But people have also pointed to a number of shortcomings uh, paradoxically, it sets aside a whole category of AI-related activity outside the realm of regulation, which has left people worried that perhaps one of the big consequences of the EU AI regulation will actually be to prohibit, <laughs> kind of funny to imagine, prohibit regulation of a large swath of AI activity. Yeah. So there's been a pushback on that front and a very interesting debate in Europe about what are sometimes called the red line activities, such as social scoring, which the Chinese government does to rate its citizens, or the use of facial surveillance in public uh, spaces, yeah. which you know many NGOs and national governments have opposed. So we'll see. I expect that the EU AI regulation will be influential. I was happy to see Jake Sullivan offer an initial endorsement, but there is a lot of work ahead. That is a big, complicated policy framework that that touches uh, you know almost all aspects of the digital economy. Yeah, you're right. Let's shift to enforcement. Although the FTC has been the primary enforcement agency for privacy at the federal level, there's some talk of creating a special privacy enforcement agency like California has done, or to spread privacy compliance around 
various government regulatory agencies, like as we've done with GLBA and, and HIPAA, with uh, the health and financial regulators enforcing those laws for companies under their purview. What are your thoughts regarding the FTC's role going forward and how would you advise Congress on enforcement? Well, I've had a long relationship with the FTC on the privacy front. It goes back to the early 1990s. I actually recommended that the FTC take on consumer uh, privacy after an effort I had worked on with Senator Paul Simon to establish a privacy agency in the U.S. This was back in 1992. I failed to get enough votes on the Senate floor. And so we concluded that if we weren't going to be able to establish a freestanding privacy agency, then we would look to the FTC and, you know, its Section 5 authority to begin to address some of the challenges that were then emerging. Uh, We brought a lot of cases to the FTC. I'm actually very proud of, you know, the Google case and the Facebook case in 2009. There was ChoicePoint and 2005 and Microsoft hailstorm around that time, we would typically set out in a 30 or 40 page document the facts as to why a certain business practice was subject to FTC authority and what the FTC should do. And oftentimes we got, you know, it seemed to be very good uh, outcomes with the FTC agreeing with us and saying they would, you know, enforce their orders. The frustration, of course, became that uh, the FTC oftentimes did not enforce its orders and businesses became aware of this. And so, of course, even with statements from the FTC about what Facebook could and could not do with personal data and whether it could obtain data from WhatsApp and whether Google could integrate services and on and on it went, even with that written into an FTC settlement, there was not the kind of meaningful oversight we hoped for So I think the results with the FTC have been very mixed. I can't say that on the private litigation front, they're necessarily much better. It is true that U.S. privacy statutes create the opportunities for significant financial penalties, which can be obtained in the form of damage awards. And oftentimes in privacy cases, uh, which are class actions, then you're looking at large monetary settlements. And we intervened in many of those cases as well, trying to get judges to make sure that those settlements provided an actual benefit to the class that was being represented by a plaintiff's attorney. But oftentimes, you know, the plaintiff's attorney got a pile of money, organizations or universities that would have otherwise been funded by the tech company defendant got the money from the settlement. And the actual class, which is to say the consumers, you know, got a notice telling them that whatever, you know, the the was initial basis for the privacy case was that created the violation would be ongoing, but at least now by virtue of the notice, they were aware of it. So the class action approach in the U.S. hasn't worked out so well either. I'm making some recommendations now for how I think that might be reformed, but I think most critical as we talk about enforcement in the privacy realm, is in the first instance, we really do need to see compliance with legal obligations because if companies believe that they can ignore their legal obligations, it's a real race to the bottom and the good companies are actually 
penalized in that world because the bad companies aren't punished. And the second thing is when you have a settlement, you know, you need a meaningful change in business practice. You can't say that a company is engaged in unlawful behavior and end up with a settlement that allows the company to keep doing what it had been doing before. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, what I think we need to see uh, change on the enforcement side in the privacy world in the U.S. Yeah. Well, yes, and looking again from the consumer's perspective, the the victim, if you will, in in many of the matters that you referenced, it seems the little guy now is getting a little more clout than he had before. Certainly the state comprehensive privacy laws seem to be trying to catch up with the EU in protecting ordinary citizens. You've been a leader in bringing attention to privacy issues affecting consumers and bringing litigation, as you've referenced, that has forced change. How do you see the consumer being represented in the current policy debates? Is their voice being adequately represented? And how do you feel about the consumer privacy right of action? I am uh, just wondering if you believe the privacy enforcement should remain with the FTC in light of your comments. Right. So I think it's very challenging, you know, for consumers who are concerned about privacy protection. I don't remember who spoke these words, but I thought there was great insight in the phrase that there should be less on the dashboard and more under the hood. And I think the point in that line is that when you think about most types of product safety, you simply want the necessary features built in. You can't ask you know, the driver of an automobile to verify that the brake linings you know, on the rear rotor are sufficient and therefore they have to take you know, calipers out and, and measure the, the width of, of the rubber banding on the rotor. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's crazy, but that's in effect what we oftentimes do with consumers in the privacy space, you know, whether it's reading privacy policies or checking cookie settings or, you know, revising the settings of a popular app that are constantly changed, the transaction costs run very high and you don't have to be a privacy advocate. Actually, an economist will tell you that the practical consequence of all that burden on the consumer is they're simply not going to make the effort, nor should they. I mean, that's the insight from behavioral economics. Consumers who are not going to extraordinary lengths to protect their privacy are acting rationally because it's not efficient for them to spend their evenings reading privacy policies, which is why, you know, I think we need privacy laws that build in the safeguards, that reduce the burden on consumers, that don't have them reading notices and asking for their consent. I mean, this is an upside-down way of viewing viewing privacy protection. Now, you're right. I mean, there has been some progress at the state level. You know, I did some work last year on on the updated California state privacy law, and I think there are real innovations there, and and I see that as a step forward. But a lot more needs to happen. And I think, you know, you speak of the little guy, you know, being empowered. I'm not sure what that would be. But I know that the amount of, you know, personal data that we've lost control of that's in the hands of others is really quite extraordinary. So um, I'd like to see, you know, Congress, and this is really now the responsibility of Congress, 
to take the necessary steps to help protect, you know, you can talk in the abstract in terms of American consumers, Americans, how about their constituents? How about simply saying to members of Congress, you know, a lot of people who voted for you are at risk of identity theft. And if you drill down on the FTC numbers, you know, in your state senator or in your district congressman, you will probably be surprised to see how many of your constituents have suffered from identity theft over the past year. You need to do something about that. You know, as you as you speak, Mark, my mind goes to the point you made earlier, which is that we certainly don't expect people to check the, for the safety of their food. We have Food and Drug Administration, and we have rules, and we have we monitor to make sure people are safe. They aren't charged with avoiding being poisoned by foods. And you know, those that legislation came out of uh, the Upton Sinclair. Uh, muckraking journalism of the early 1900s. And I hadn't thought of this before our podcast, but it, it does, episode, it does seem that uh, maybe some of the, there is a little bit more need for media attention to the negative impacts, which you mentioned again and again in this, in this episode, the negative impacts on individual people so that people become more demanding that their legislators focus on these issues and build in protections and not push to them the responsibility for managing their own privacy. But anyway, that's just my sidebar observation, Jody. I wondered, Mark, if you think that when we do start looking at national privacy legislation, whether we will break down some of the industry sector barriers that we have with financial and health sectors with their own laws and maybe move toward more of a broadly applicable approach based on privacy principles like the GDPR has done instead of all the slicing and dicing in the U.S. about the types of data we have and the industry sectors that are processing it. Um, What do you see about that front? Do you see us moving away from that sectorized, balkanized approach and moving toward a more comprehensive overall privacy law or staying with those distinctions? Well, I think it would be great, of course, if we had a more coherent, overarching approach. In this respect, I think the European Union was very wise to put in place uh, the Data Protection Directive back in the early 90s when they were integrating the economies of the member state and promoting uh, the free flow of labor, uh, goods, capital within the union. And they said, we want a single comprehensive approach. It is remarkably not that, you know, bureaucratic. I mean, you have data protection agencies in each member state. You have the European Data Protection Board and the European Data Protection Supervisor But you hold up that system, you know, which has sometimes been mocked by U.S. lawmakers against, you know, the regulatory albatross in the U.S. financial services sector. And you really have to ask, you know, which is the more efficient approach to privacy protection? Now, I do think the good news is that there are a lot of commonalities across sectors in privacy protection. And I think that's become clear over time. I think it's clear even as we enter the world of AI-based decision-making, 
which actually carries forward many of the same principles of the privacy world. The phrase I oftentimes used when I spoke before Congress about the basis of modern privacy law was actually taken from a report from a U.S. agency back in 1973. And that agency uh, produced records, computers, and the rights of citizens. It gave us the basis of our Privacy Act of 1974, still a pretty good privacy law. They talked about fair information practices, Mm -hmm. which I have described as the rights and responsibilities associated with the collection use of personal data. And if you choose to collect personal data of your customers or your clients, you're not required to do that for the most part. I know there are some exceptions. Uh, But if you choose to collect personal data, you take on responsibilities. And if you give up your personal data to a government agency or private company, you get certain rights. Mm -hmm. And again, that asymmetry makes a lot of sense because it's actually the business or the agency that's in the better position, position to protect the data once they have obtained it. So, you know, it would be nice, of course, to see a a greater convergence. I think there's a lot in the logic of privacy law that would uh, lead us in that direction, and particularly in the consumer privacy space, where there's still so little in the way of of a legislative baseline. uh, I think there is a real opportunity there for federal legislation. Well, this has been really interesting. We've run out of time, but I want to thank you again for taking your afternoon to be with us today and provide your thoughts to our listeners. It's been a great honor to have you with us, Mark. Thanks again. Jerry? Yes, and thank you again, Mark. Uh, Really a very interesting discussion. You know, I know we brought out of time, but we did have a brief mention of this Republican leader's letter to President Biden could you just give us a minute on that and and where you see that leading? I was very happy to see that. Uh, you know, a statement from the key leaders, uh, Republican leaders of key congressional committees calling for comprehensive privacy legislation. They make the case uh, well. And for me, it was actually a nice reminder all the years of working on privacy issues. It oftentimes seemed to me it was one area where Republicans and Democrats could work together on a, on a common issue of, of national interest. And, and that's still my belief. I lived in that era when there was that cooperation. And, there, uh, and another ray of hope, I think, is from another podcast guest that we had, uh, Susan Dobene, who is the head of the 100-person New Democrat Coalition. And she has put in bipartisan legislation. So maybe, maybe we'll see some movement as we move forward. Let's hope so. Thank you very, very much for being with us been a very stimulating discussion. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. national privacy legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode 
where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation. 